Welcome back to Damn Good Brands Origin Stories. In less than 10 years, Dave Finney has become the undisputed rock star of California's wine world. Have you ever seen a wine label in a liquor store that made you go, holy shit, it was probably one of Dave's? Have you ever tasted a California red blend that made you go, holy shit? Also probably one of Dave's. Having apprenticed under Robert Mondavi, Dave worked his way up the wine chain, ultimately starting his own Napa Valley brand, Orin Swift Cellars. After selling his runaway hit debut wine, The Prisoner, to Constellation Brands, Dave continued releasing multiple wines that pushed boundaries for their unique flavor profiles and beautifully edgy branding. After spending years building this portfolio of best-selling and award-winning wines, Dave sold off his brands and assets to EJ Gallo. One of his more recent ventures is Savage and Cook, a distillery he recently founded set between San Francisco and Napa Valley. Through Savage and Cook, Dave is producing spirits labels that include the Burning Chair Bourbon, Second Glance American Whiskey, my personal favorite, Lip Service Rye, and Ayate Tequila. We get into a lot in this conversation, and Dave seriously over-delivers on the entrepreneurial advice and insights. I had to listen to this a few times to really get a grasp on everything because there is so much to learn here. We hear all about Dave's origin story as a struggling winemaker all the way to the building of his awesome wine empire, as well as his creative process and advice for aspiring entrepreneurs. All of this and so much more on today's special episode of Damn Good Brands Origin Stories. Now crack yourself open a bottle of wine and please enjoy this conversation with Mr. Dave Finney. Dave Finney, thank you for being on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having me. So I, I feel like one of the most fascinating things about you as an entrepreneur, particularly in the wine industry, is that the wine as a category is not always known for being, when it comes to branding, particularly innovative. It's not necessarily a stuffy category, although there's a lot of stuffy brands. But, I mean, you brought not only a very high-quality and sophisticated product to market, but a real just rock-and-roll sensibility to your branding as well, which is is a very interesting, interesting juxtaposition. So I'm wondering, how did that sensibility come about in the first place? Because, I mean, your wines are so distinguished, I mean, from a taste perspective as well as a visual perspective. So how did how did this kind of daring to be different come about? I mean, I think like so many other stories you've probably heard or that we've all heard, you know, by accident. Um, frankly, the first sort of, you know, I wouldn't call it avant-garde, but, you know, departure or sort of more racy label that we produced was a wine called The Prisoner. And the, that, that label came about because of the 2000 harvest and how difficult it was. And in <laughs> long story, uh, very short, I had some wines I liked and I had some wines I didn't like and I had some wines that I w- was probably going to declassify. I threw them all together and it made a great wine. Whoa. So kind of better to be lucky than good. And I needed a label and that image is um, a Francisco Goya etching that was a gift from my parents when I think I was 13. And so my uh, brother at the time was dabbling in graphic design, and he kind of threw the sunset in the background. And it, the name of the artwork is called, it's called The Little Prisoner, but I just called it The Prisoner. And it's the actual size, and I put it on a bottle, and that was it. And I had more people, including my father-in-law, well, who was, I was dating his daughter at the time, who's in the wine business, I mean, almost yelling at me to not do this. It's suicide. No one's going to get it. No one's going to like it. 
And, you know, it, it ended up being a huge uh, success. I mean, huge at the time was 385 cases. But by the time I sold that brand uh, eight years later, uh, it was almost 100,000 cases. So, wow. um, you know, we, 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 got, we got lucky there. But what that allowed for, to answer the larger question, is, you know, it's kind of that winning cures everything, uh, you know, kind of mentality. And, and I feel like the, with the success of, the brand, of that brand, um, and it was immediate. So we got to see it firsthand. It was, it was kind of a crazy ride. And it sort of gave us the license to now go do it again. So the next label we did, um, it, again, now looks, you know, it's, it's probably our most stoic label is the Mercury Head Cabernet label. That's simply a Mercury Head dime. And I did that because as, as a kid, I was, you know, embarrassing. I was a little bit nerdy maybe. And I had a coin collection and I loved Mercury Head dimes and, and so I took a piece of tape because sometimes you can have these, what you think are great ideas for a wine label. And then it just doesn't translate literally onto the bottle. It just doesn't look right on a bottle. So I put, took a piece of tape and taped it on and I kind of squinted to make the tape go away for a second. And then unbelievably, I, I was able to get label approval from, uh, at the time it was the BATF. And I still have the facts somewhere. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> and so that was our, uh, that was our second sort of label. And then it just went into Papillon and then it just continued. And it really became, you know, we, I really enjoyed challenging, you know, myself and, and my crew. So it really became a challenge to constantly, you know, dig deeper and, you know, never trying to shock and awe, you know, that's never, it's, it's, it's quite the opposite. It's, I'm, I'm very, respectful and proud of the craft and, and winemaking and other winemakers and sort of the entire community. But I definitely want people to think a little bit. And, you know, an old wise farmer named Doug White, who I uh, care about deeply and has been a bit of a mentor, you know, for the last 25 years, years ago, he said to me, you know, if 10% of the people out there hate my guts, I'm doing something right. You know, you, you're never going to, if you're trying to please everybody, you, you, you know, First and foremost, you got to please yourself. You got to, I have to be happy with the label. And if, and to me, if, if it's, if I, if I'm happy with it, I'll, I'll accept any criticism, you know, I'll, I'll own it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's important. And, and I, I think once we started going down that, that sort of path of these different stylistically different labels than traditional labels, I don't know, probably, four or five years into it, we really just stopped trying to compete, you know, at, from a label standpoint, we stopped trying to compete within the wine, um, the not business, but the wine category. And I started going outside and I wanted to compete in like the fashion category. I wanted to compete in, you know, streetwear. I wanted to compete in, you know, I grew up skateboarding. So like that culture, it became, look, we need to challenge ourselves with other cultures. Um, That's because, we're otherwise we're going to be, we're going to stagnate here. We're just going to be, you know, trying to beat ourselves. And that's, that's no fun. So competing within those other categories from a branding perspective. Correct. That's yeah. It's really interesting. I've never heard anybody, you know, even make that consideration because normally people attempt to compete within their own industry, but um, competing from a branding perspective, 
with other industries. I think there's there's something very fascinating about that. I feel like John Varvatos does that too, you know, with him, his very rock star forward branding, um, being a part of fashion. And that kind of competes with music and movies to an extent and, you know, certain certain elements of culture. But I feel like there's a huge idea. Well, and it's also, it's, it's a combination of, of, you know, that it's competing, but also being inspired by those right. other industries. Because I think they, generally speaking, do it better mm-hmm. for, for my sensibilities. Yeah. Um, and also it's funny because I'm sure everybody's, I've got to believe like 99% of America has uh, uh, watched The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. And it was intriguing because I've, I've always, you know, say that we're, we're sort of quietly competitive. Mm-hmm. And when I watched that documentary and, and watched him have to create reasons and almost, you know, pick a fight with himself so he could, you know, rise to whatever that next challenge was, I realized that it's like <laughs> we sort of do that too. Enjoy the challenge and kind of never resting on laurels, but just constantly finding a way to, it's interesting, pick a fight with yourself, so to speak. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, one fascinating thing you touched on was just the importance of being inspired when it comes to, in your case, coming up with labels and bottle designs and things like that. So I'm really curious, how do you collect inspiration? Uh, I would imagine you must have some sort of scrapbook or Evernote or some way. I mean, I'm sure you see things all the time that inspire you in one way or another, whether it be labels or anything else. But how do you keep track of the things that inspire you? And then how do you, you know, dip back into them when it comes time to design so it's, it's a lot of, obviously, iPhone. iPhones are amazing. So, you know, I'm constantly taking photos or screenshots and, and, and going through them, you know, over and over again. I'm, I'm, I'm on kind of an architecture uh, uh, binge right now. Um, but really what my favorite thing in the world to do, and, and ironically enough, I, I've been doing it not as much lately because I've been home, but when I travel, I always buy you know, dozens, if not, you know, I mean, not hundreds, but especially in foreign countries, I buy tons and tons of magazines, all different kinds, fashion, architecture, art, sports, I mean, you name it. And I go through and I, I think, I don't know if I'm dyslexic or Japanese because I always start at the back of the magazine. <laughs> and I think it's just because I'm right-handed. I don't know if maybe I can flip pages faster. And I feel sorry for all the people that have sat next to me on a flight where I'm uh, drinking usually cold white wine and because I do it very quickly because it just, it, it, if it doesn't hit me right away, um, then usually that's, then it's not that great. If I have to kind of find it, you know, um, then it's probably a, a kind of a B idea, but the A idea is I'll just rip, I rip right out of the magazine and sometimes it, I'll rip just that piece. I'll rip it out and I usually have a Sharpie and I'll put, I'll circle what I like or write why I like it. Cause, and I only started doing that about five years ago. Cause I ended up with this, you know, these boxes of really cool things. And I was like, wait, why did I, why don't, I can't remember why I liked this and what it was for. Mm, right. So I've started now writing it down. So that would be like the first pass of the magazine. Then I'll go back and I'll, I'll mine again, much slower, almost for like the B rated stuff. And sometimes I miss something. So and it's just this process that is just, it's so, it, I, I just love it because it's just enough to kind of focus on and keep you awake, but not so much that, you know, you can listen to music or podcasts while you're doing it, you know, and that's, 
that's something that I just, it's a really calming, fun thing. Um, so that's, that's one of the ways. The other ways is, you know, being raised by two professors um, that were very much uh, travel bugs. I mean, we traveled all over the world as kids. My brother and I, my parents took us, I mean, everywhere except Africa, actually. Um, and anytime we went to a, a city anywhere in the world, in domestic or foreign, we always would go to a museum, um, some type of a museum, usually art. And so my mother, who ended up getting a, a doctorate to be in psychology, before that she got a master's of fine art. And my grandfather, who was also a professor, was a professor of archaeology. So, and I love archaeology. So we would, you know, go to museums usually in the morning or in the, or, or earlier in the day. And then in, in the afternoon, me and my brother got to pick something fun to do. But and it wasn't like a one hour deal. We'd walk, you know, three, four hours around in a museum and go to lunch or something like that. So just by osmosis, um, you know, it just, I, I have to believe that that did something to me. Yeah. And then growing up in West LA, you know, sort of in the eighties with that street art culture, I was, like I said, I was really into skateboarding and surfing and that, you know, whole sort of sensibility juxtaposed with, you know, the lube. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it just it, all that, you know, mint, you know, sort of throw all of that, including like, you know, the punk rock scene, you know, hip hop, throw that all in a blender kind of a thing and, um, and see what comes out. So it's, and I continue, it's almost like continued education. I, 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 I watch, you know, I, like I said, I have a 15 and a 17 year old and I'm very engaged in their lives but I also am very engaged in what they're interested in and they have, I'm very lucky. My, my daughter's an, an amazing almost woman now, but she's just got a, an eye. And so I, I really am interested in what she's doing. And my son's super into like street, uh, streetwear and sneakers and that culture. And that's an amazing culture. So I, I, I vicariously stay, stay current. Um, and I've, I've bought a lot of, really cool shoes that I am not cool enough to wear that my son and I now have the same, uh, we have the same shoe size. So he's like, God, you should get some of those, you know, dunks. And I'm like, yeah, okay. yeah. You know, a couple beers in, I think I might be able to pull it off. They come in the mail and I put them on. I said, yep, no, I'm putting my boots back on. <laughs> It's funny that you mention everything between, you know, punk rock, surf culture, skate culture, and what you'll find in the Louvre, because it, that feels like it's so indicative of your approach to wine as well, and how you're all about the blend. You blend these seemingly disparate types of wine that not a lot of people blend. You know, there's this alchemical process to it, but just this notion of blending a number of things together to arrive at something completely new, different, fresh, and exciting. It's fascinating that that is consistent between your approach to branding and your approach to pro product development. In this case, you know, making, making the wine. Well, I think also I forgot one thing too, to throw in there into the mix is I was a classically trained violin player for about, Oh, 12 years. And, uh, finally had to put it down when, uh, when I discovered girls, but, um, <laughs> so I think music plays a big part and having started at a very, very young age. Um, and I, I think I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't sort of mention that. Yeah. Yeah. That just, the, this, I played the violin for probably about three years. It was really, really young. I definitely, you, I, I couldn't, you, if you put one in my hand, I wouldn't know what to do with it now, but, uh, uh yeah. <laughs> 
Would love to get into your overall origin story. I mean, how you went from working with Robert Mondavi to starting The Prisoner. I mean, what could you just kind of walk the listeners through what it was like for you to get started? Sure. I mean, if you really, I'll try not to go too far back, but I didn't grow up in the wine culture. Um, you know, my mom would have a glass of, you know, Almaden or something, and my dad, who didn't drink much, would have, you know, a beer, and he was a single malt scotch guy, so you know, you might do that, but, you know, I, I have a lot of friends now in the business, you know, sort of all over the world. And, and we all have different, you know, as you mentioned, origin stories and mine doesn't start, <laughs> mine is not hereditary, so to speak, although there's a crazy sidebar story, I'll tell you another time, but it all started when I went to Florence, Italy for a semester abroad, um, on a lark, you know, I was not planning on it. A buddy called me 11th hour, I was skiing up in British Columbia. He said, Hey, you know, someone dropped out of, uh, the study abroad program. You want to go? And, you know, two weeks later, I'm on a, on a flight to, uh, to Rome. And from Rome, we went to uh, Florence. And that particular guy who is a dear friend and, and actually um, we still work together, his name is Tom Traverso, and his family is in the wine business in Sonoma County. And so, oh, wow. um, you know, and I was, was kind of like a beer and whiskey guy. And so we get to Florence, you know, and our other uh, uh, roommate, uh, great, uh, Irish kid, uh, Scott Kelly from Malden, just outside of Boston, every day after school, after classes, we would go to the local call it Supermarché, and we would each buy a magnum of red wine, different red wines. And we'd go back to our room and Tom would give us, this is, was my beginning of my education of wine. Tom would say, you know, this is a Montepulciano and from this grape and this is Sangiovese. And so we would have, you know, some amount of time, call it a half an hour, where we, we, the three of us would sit there and ask questions. And it just became this sort of ritual that we did. Um, and then we had, you know, we branched out to other stores to try other things. But I realize now how lucky I was because I never had to go through that, like, demystification, you know, scary, pretentious wine um, phase because this was 1996. And wine was still kind of mysterious and a little you know, there was wine snobs call it. And right. to have that, to have that demystification, that education, you know, replete with four letter words and, you know, funny descriptors, it just, I just fell in love uh, with wine. And at the same time I was, you know, it was junior year uh, up until then I had, um, I had plans of going to law school, which I still don't know uh, exactly why. <laughs> and so my, uh, I was studying political science and history as well as interning for the public defender's office and a congressman and knew that I didn't want to be in, involved in the legal system and I didn't want to be a politician. And that just happened to be when I was, you know, that's kind of that Florence trip turned into this like wonderlust, figure out what you want to be when you grow up. So that's when we were getting near the end of the trip and Tom and Scott and I were sitting out, I hate to admit, smoking cigarettes on our balcony and lamenting the fact that, you know, this six months, you know, time to go back to the real world and, you know, kind of what are we going to be when we grow up? And Tom just looked right at me and goes, you seem to really have taken to, you know, wine and viticulture and, and have you ever thought about the wine business? And that's when the light bulb went off. So when I got back, I got back to, uh, University of Arizona and I found a professor in the um, ag department and we ended up planting and he had just gotten a grant. I mean, timing is everything. He had just gotten a grant to plant an experimental one acre uh, vineyard in Tucson 
So I, I along with some other students, um, helped in the planting of, of this vineyard. I had to do a bunch of research on rootstocks and clones. And at the same time, I also got a job doing retail sales at an amazing wine shop in, again, in Tucson, um, called the Rum Runner. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was kind of the good news. I mean, the bad news was I really don't like selling and I'm not a good salesman. The good news is Tom and Jen, the owners of the store, who are amazing people, really encouraged everybody on the floor to, to taste wines because how, how can you sell something you haven't tasted? Mm-hmm. And so we could buy any wine in the store at cost. So at night, I would go home with like four or five bottles of wine and I would sit down. My roommates absolutely loved me. Cause I would be working. I would have, you know, I would be writing down descriptors cause I was so inside. I had, I had that very much had the sort of imposter syndrome. And so I was overcompensating and, you know, reading and reading and reading, you know, watching Jancis Robinson's videos. And I mean, everything just immersing myself more. And I, I was doing it because I wanted to be able to talk about the wines on the floor, but what it, what it, the, the byproduct that I didn't realize is I was, I was teaching my, I mean, I was self-educating myself on wine and I was tasting tons and tons of wine every day. And so while I didn't like the sales part of it, I loved that aspect of it. And I loved working in the vineyard. So, uh, what I did was I sent my resume out to 50 different wineries cause I was coming up on graduation. And the only response I got back was from Robert Mondavi winery for a, what's called a temporary harvest position. And you, you cannot get any lower. So I fly up to, to Napa or actually to San Jose. My brother picked me up, drove me up and I show up to my interview, which was in a trailer because they were redoing the Tokolon room behind the Mandavi winery. And I show up in a suit and tie as I was taught with my resume, didn't have my degree yet, but months away. And the guys that interviewed me, a guy named Bob Paddock and Jerry Egan literally laughed at me. Um, you know, <laughs> and and we, we sat down we ended up talking for about 45 minutes and, and they figured out kind of what I wanted to do. And, you know, the, there was a, a test, uh, which was a math test and it went something like, if you have one barrel and it's 60 gallons and you add another barrel of equal volume, how many total gallons do you have? So I was, Whoa. I was able to get that one. And then, uh, <laughs> and of course there was, uh, it's worse than there Google. was a drug test. What's that? It's like with the it's like the test they give you at Google. Oh man, it was it was I was I was actually when they said there's going to be a math test, I was I didn't know to what degree it was because I was thinking like winemaking and chemistry and right, so I was right. kind of freaked out and um and then there was a drug test which I'm proud to say I passed and they uh, they said to me Bob actually said hey look it sounds like you really want to you know get some hands on experience and get dirty and. And you should come work. I'm on the sort of the foreman at the uh, facility down in Carneros, and you'll see a little bit of everything there. Um, the only problem is all the day shifts are taken. You're going to have to work the night shift from 3:30 till 1 a.m. And I said, "Hey, Bob, look, that's what you're telling me. I'll be there." So I flew back up about a month later. I think it was August 4th, and started. That was the harvest in 1997. And when I showed up to uh, my first day. Uh, I was the only white guy on an all Mexican crew. And after about, Oh, I don't know, call it a week. They realized that I, I wasn't sort of the lazy token white boy. And they gave me a nickname and took me in and taught me a lot of the skills that I still use to this day. And, and I just had a ball and 
fell in love with it again because um, I'd never done production. And it's hard physical work. I mean, we call it dragon hoses. And I and mentally as well, um, I decided that 1997, that harvest, I said, eventually, you know, if I'm going to work this hard, both physically and mentally, I'm going to eventually have to do it for myself. So I waited a whole one year. And in the harvest, <laughs> 1998 is when I started Orange Swift um, and just kind of have been punching ever since. And what were the first steps in starting your, well, actually, let me backtrack. First of all, what was your nickname that they gave you? Oh, it was uh, Weto, which is kind of Spanish, slang Spanish for light-skinned. Um, you know, like even light-skinned Mexican guys are called Weto as well. But it was always, it was always punctuated with Pinchy Weto or Weto Taligon, which just means lazy, light-skinned <laughs> white boy. Um, it was it was so much fun. And my early Spanish, which is still horrible, is very much defensive Spanish. And it's <laughs> hilarious. I'll, I'll be walking down the streets in St. Helena, and one of the old gang will see me. And it's always usually this guy, Waldo. And he just starts yelling a barrage of insults at me, you know, punctuated with Weto and this and Weto that. And my, the last time it happened, my son looked up. He's like, because he's heard me tell that story. And he's like, Dad, you weren't kidding. I'm like, yeah, no, that, like, it doesn't matter that, you know, supposedly I'm, you know, a successful winemaker. This guy, to this guy, I'm still pinchy weather. So I love it. <laughs> That's awesome. So what were the steps you had to take to get Orrin Swift off the ground in the beginning? I mean, when you decided this is what I want to do, what did you do next? Well, it's, it's, it's not that it's an easy process. You know, back then it was, it was a bit easier, but I had to, you know, get the name. Uh, get a, a DBA doing business as um, you, you can what's called custom crush. So you can, you don't have to get your, I mean, you have to get a, a license, but it's not like a winery permit. So I got this, I think it's a 17 or a 20. I can't remember the number. And then I was custom crushing um, uh, where I eventually met my wife at Whitehall Lane, White, excuse me, Whitehall Lane winery, where I was also working in the cellar. Um, so Tom Leonardini, who's now my father-in-law um, and was the owner, kind of gave me a chance. He, I had to pay just like everybody else. And I got a little corner um, where I was able to make, he limited me to, I think I was allowed to make four tons, um, which is kind of unheard of to, you know, considering that I was there every day and he trusted me to know that I was going to do my day job first and on my lunch break, you know, punch down my wines and do my wine work and then come back at night and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's probably why we have such a good relationship to this day. Cause we, we're very honest with each other. Um, that's cool. But, uh, so I was able to do, to get my start that way. And whereas 90, 1997, which was my first year, which, you know, was arguably one of the logistically easiest year ever, the fruit just came in so metered and, you know, it was a great, really easy wines to drink. You know, I was like, man, this is awesome. You know? you know, to hear the horror stories of burgundy vintages. And, you know, I didn't know what to expect. Well, 1998 was the exact opposite. 98, the year I decided to get into the business, which is now, again, looking back, I'm so glad it happened this way. Um, I got my ass handed to me. I mean, it was a cold, wet year. I bought the wrong part of a great vineyard. I tried everything I could do. And I just, I just, this wine, it was okay, but I was not going to, you know, that was not going to be my coming out party. It wasn't going to be this wine. And so, and, and I really, that's when I learned what an amazing community of winemakers there are, not only in Napa, but all over the world, because 
I would talk to someone and they would say, Oh, you should call Joe. He had this problem once, or, you know, Becky might know. And, and I ended up meeting and, and some of these were like made men and women, you know, yeah. I mean, I remember calling Heidi, I called Heidi Barrett of all people and she took my call and, you know, we're still friends to this day, but wow. you know, it's, Real community. It's, it's that. Yeah, exactly. And cause everybody's, you know, everybody's had that day when their tractor broke and they need to borrow a tractor or they ran out of bins or they, you know, need sulfur or whatever. And, and, you know, we're all competing kind of, but it's not, it's not like wall street bankers. Right. I mean, it's, it's pretty friendly. So, um, but no matter what I did, it just was only going to ever be okay. So I ended up what's called bulking that wine out and I sold my five barrels and I'll, I'll always, uh, thank, um, Joel Peterson, uh, from, uh, Ravenswood at the time to come pick up. I mean, they're huge, huge infidel producers. So to come pick up five barrels, uh, the guy I came good friends with Dan O'Donnell, crazy guy, um, came and picked up my five barrels. I, I, he gave me a good price. I think I technically broke even if you don't count my time. And I just kind of kept going from there. 1999 was actually a really good harvest. I mean, you know, high quality, not a ton of fruit. And I just kind of jumped back on the horse. And, but what I really learned in 1998 and I've kept to this day, it's sort of our ethos is that we do 95 to 99% of our winemaking in the vineyard. Because what I came to obviously find out was, through all the experimentation, everything I tried to do, the blending, everything I tried to do to that wine, once it was in the barn, as we say, there's only so much you can do. So that has created this sort of lifelong obsession with bird dogging vineyards and trying to find the best sites, the best soils, the best aspects, the best exposure. And really, you know, farming is, is probably my, my favorite part of the equation um, and getting in the vineyards you know, doing the work, doing the right work. And, you know, there is no perfect day to pick a grape, but trying to establish your style and, you know, maintain that style and that consistency through, you know, proper vineyard selection and diversity. But it's, um, that was the, the big takeaway that I got in 98. And that's why I said, I'm so glad that it happened my first year. Cause had I had a string of, you know, easy harvests where the kind of wine made itself almost, then I might have I might have you know gotten complacent and or complacent and I never I never had a chance to do that because it was so seared you know into my head you know 1998 I kind of get you know <laughs> shivers when I even say 1998 because it was <laughs> just brutal and and I had all my own money in and you know and you're starting a business and you're working you know that was the year I remember 98 I everybody brags about, you know, how many days in a row you work during harvest. And that year was 68. I remember that. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's looking back now again, it was the best thing that ever happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how sometimes those like the bad times or in certain case, certain failures can, can just give you a sense of resilience that serves you tremendously down the line. Cause like, cause like you said, if things were too easy, you, who knows what would have happened later down the line had there been a bad harvest. But I think the saying goes, a, um, a smooth sea doesn't make good sailors. <laughs> it sounds yeah, like that was I the like case. That. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm stealing that one for my next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
Cool. Uh, no, you know, it's funny when you mentioned that the the bat and I, I do, I love your podcast and I listen to podcast, drive my wife crazy. Oh, I, I listen to it literally in the shower. And, uh, so it, it's, I like it because almost every, almost every time I hear someone talk about their start of the business and, you know, we, we always talk about like those good old days and, you know, just how it was just, you know, you hear about people selling their business cause it wasn't like it was, you know, cause everybody has this romantic notion, but it's, I think I like, it's almost like entrepreneurial pregnancy. Cause I'd heard somewhere that there's a, a chemical after a woman gives birth that's released so that she almost can't remember how hard it was. Otherwise she would never do it again. And oh my God. We wouldn't, and we wouldn't, you know, procreate. And I feel like entrepreneurs or people that start a business, we have some chemical that it changes our recollection of, of <laughs> what it was like because it was brutal. I mean, there is no way to say it any other way. It was, you know, sleepless nights. Where's the money? Is there money? Are we selling? You know, you just go down a list. Then you throw in the fact that it's farming. So we got mother nature to contend oh, with. Man. And as we know, she always, you know, she always bats last. So, you know, you're dealing with all these things and you've got a regular job and maybe a girlfriend or a wife. And my social life, for those early years was gone. I missed all my buddies' weddings, all my, you know, family's weddings. Um, I had my brother. I didn't even go to his bachelor party. I didn't have a bachelor party. Um, it was 10 years probably of that. And, you know, that I look back at it fondly, but if, if I really go to that, that deep dark spot and remember, you know, there was a period of time and it wasn't months, it was years when my wife and I had a deal that I would be home for dinner and I had to wait till the kids went to bed, read them a story. And then I could go back to work because my office is walking distance from the house. That was usually around eight o'clock. So I would usually go back to the office till midnight and then come home. My wife of course would be asleep. And the deal was that I could, if I woke up in the middle of the night, it, I couldn't leave the bed till three thirty. So often I would sit there from two till three thirty or whatever, just freaking out and get up, walk back to my office, but I had to be home by seven to wake the kids up and have breakfast. And then I would just go to my nine to five. Well, I did that for, I'm not joking, not every night, but a lot of nights, probably 75% of the days of the week I did that. And it was for years and I don't know how many years, but it, it, it was a grind and, but it was because this was when prisoner was growing at some years, 500%. And I didn't, you know, there was no plan B, you know, and it was like, yeah, this is great, you know, because, but someone had to do the work and, you know, imagine that you're doing all that work and you're not growing. Cause that's the flip side. You would have still had to do the work. At least we had the benefit of the growth and the revenue but, you know, I can't imagine doing that. And then on top of that, you're, you're barely making it. So that's what I was to the sort of beleaguering the point of that uh, entrepreneurial pregnancy that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it was. And it, the other thing, too, it, it wasn't healthy. And, and that's what I realized. Um, you know, I, I, I look, I've looked at a picture recently of, of how I look back there and I've got bags under my eyes, I'm, you know, lost a bunch of weight and, you know, it's just not, it's not sustainable. Um, but I'm glad I did it when I was young and, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it, it, 
it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I think it makes, you know, it makes you, it, it, you realize what you can or can't do. Right. Right. It feels like very much a rite of passage for a lot of entrepreneurs. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that exactly. being said, was there ever any sort of, for those entrepreneurs who are listening, who are facing their own hardships, was there ever a dark night of the soul where you considered quitting? And if so, what was it that pushed you through to the other side? Oh, never. No, I, I mean, two things. My pride would never let me do that. Um, and I, and I was fortunate to have so much of this involved luck. Like, I can't speak to like huge, you know, moments of luck, but I've had a lot of, you know, that day that you're just, you know, about to just snap and a huge order comes in or, you know, something, you know, great happens or, you know what I mean? Yeah. But so much of that, you, I can't even remember because, you know, there were so many of those moments, but no, there was no failure was not an option. I mean, it, it was just a, it was my pride, but also, you know, there, by the time I was in too deep, I mean, by the time I was in too deep, it was too late. Like I, I had, there was no, you know, cause then, you know, it was self-funded and then I got a line of credit and then it got real, you know, and then we're talking about millions, you know, you're talking about millions of dollars and this is a guy wearing, you know, the same boots I'm wearing actually literally right now. Cause I get them resold. I got two pairs and I swap them out. You know, I drive an old piece of shit truck. Like money is not what motivates me, but it was just I just needed it to continue to grow because then it then it became like who's running who, and and you know it, it's it's it, it's great. You're having this success. You're making wines. You're doing what you love. You know, are you really spending enough time with your family? You know, are you really enjoying whatever money it is you're making? And you know, that, that is that everybody has their moment when they realize that. And for me, it's, it's, it's sort of a, I think it's still in process, but it, it really, uh, it came to, and it really happened. I think that probably for my wife, the happiest day of her life, uh, well, other than our kids and all that, but I mean, call it business life was when I sold prisoner. Cause yeah. once that, once I got off of that train, and it was the perfect time we were in this incredible growth, you know, and it was just mentally, it was the right, it was just, again, this gets into that luck and timing. It was just the, it was just the right time to everything. And that's when I kind of had a, you know, a reflective moment and, and not, you know, ratcheted it way back and no more of those crazy three thirties and all that. And, and um, I think there was also a bit of a, you know, internally that sort of imposter syndrome, which I definitely still, still have in, in, in lots of different businesses. But I think that was like, uh, all right, at least for me, I had a, some, some not closure, but all right, you know, I, I, I'll never think that we've succeeded ever, but at least it was like, a, okay, I can settle, settle down a little bit, you yeah. know? Um, and so that was great. But you know, what I would say to people that are, you know, in that same situation, it, I got this advice from a guy I really don't like, but it shows that you can, that even bad people, you can get something good from them. But he once said to me, you know, Dave, nothing is ever as good as it seems and nothing is ever as bad as it seems. And I can, I can definitely agree with that and have lived that because you would think that the day I sold prisoner and, you know, 
had a nice big check and all that. I remember walking out in my backyard. I talked to my wife. We'd had some champagne. She went to bed. I had like a scotch or something. I don't even remember. And I walked out in my backyard and I was just like, you know, I'm kind of like, fuck, isn't it supposed to like feel better? Like it was just like, yeah, right. okay, great. You know? And it, it was just really, it, it really punctuated that, that comment that he had made to me. And then, you know, when you think that the world's coming to an end and then you wake up the next day, the sun comes up, your kids are healthy, your wife still likes you. It's like, yeah, like it's, it's, it's not that bad either. You know, right. whatever that thing that I thought was going to be so horrible yesterday, I can't even remember it today. So that's what I would say to people is just, you know, and, and don't do, I heard a great, I think it is General McRaven. And he said what, where guys would fail is they would think about the last thing they had to do that day. And he said, it, it, he put it as evolution. So he said, okay, you're going to wake up. And you, the first thing you have to do is calisthenics for two hours. And so you can't think about the four mile run on the sand after that, or the two mile open water swim after that. And then, you know, studying whatever the class is and then more out calisthenics. And then at night, you know, he said, you just have to think about that particular evolution. Hmm. So do be the, you know, the, uh, how do you put it? Be the best at whatever that evolution is and don't think about the next one and then try to be the best at that. And that's another really good lesson. Cause I used to do that. I would be thinking about God, if I don't do this, then I can't afford barrels. And if I do that, then, then this wine doesn't sell. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're thinking about divorce and bankruptcy. When right. it's like, no, all you have to do is figure out how you're going to buy the barrels. You know, like <laughs> evolution. So that's what I would, that's another piece of advice that it took me a long time, a very long, and I still haven't even, you know, completely gotten there because everybody can go down those rabbit holes. Yeah. But it's really just, Really don't just focus on exactly what it is that's going to get you to this afternoon or tomorrow. Yeah. I feel like that's huge. Otherwise, you psych yourself out, you enter analysis paralysis, and then you just don't even, you're entirely discouraged to get started. Well, and, and the other thing too is, and sometimes I, and I look back now and kind of laugh at it, I would, I would be so frustrated. I would just like, I would go like clean my room or like, fold laundry. Cause like, I know that I can start this and finish this. Yeah. Everything else is so out of my control. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's so many other factors that I can't control. I'm going to go do one thing I can't control right. and I can start and finish. And I look back now and I don't, didn't even realize that that's why I was doing it at the time. Yeah. I've, I've heard, they say that if you are feeling anxious or depressed, clean your house. And then that is, it's not only nice, to be surrounded by a clean house, but it also does give you a semblance of control and a sense of, you know, cause and effect in completing something, all of which are really, really just good, healthy, positive emotions for anybody who's either in business or a creator. So afterwards you went to found Savage and Cook, which is I've been really, really enjoying the whiskey. Thank you again. Oh, good. You're welcome. You're very welcome. So would you, I mean, liquors is, is a very, it's a crowded category as well as a ruthlessly competitive industry. But, um, I mean, it seems like you applied a lot of the magic that you applied to the wine industry when you entered the, uh, the liquor category. I mean, so what was your way of kind of, how did you Dave Finney your way into, into the liquor category? What was your approach there? Well, I was, I was kind of coaxed into it and it, and, and it's a funny story. It was probably 10 plus or minus 10 years ago and maybe even a little longer when the, when the craft spirits was just 
just getting going and, and brown spirits especially. And I had a number of different distributors, you know, saying, Hey, you know, you should, you should really get in the, in the craft spirits. You should get into bourbon. You should get into whiskey. And, and, and I will have a, a, you know, a cocktail or even, you know, a whiskey. I mean, even to this day, um, well, tequila, I really like mezcal also, but my point being, I'm, I drink a lot more wine than I do spirits. So it's not like I was naturally like a, a whiskey guy. Um, and so there wasn't that like love, like in, you know, the kind of the love I have for wine, I didn't at the time have it for spirits. Right. So when I kept, when I would press them on why, why should I do that? They would say, cause we can all make a bunch of money. And that is always, if you, if you're getting, if you're looking at it, like my mental checklist yeah. is money is always, if it's even on the list, it's at the bottom. Right. You know, to me, the only reason for doing something, there, it, it has to be extremely risky. It has to have a very, you know, potential, you know, no uh, ROI. It has to be very time consuming and very expensive. Because mm-hmm. to me, if, if all those boxes get checked, we 90% of our competition is not going to do it because of all of those reasons. So we should do that. Wow. Um, so when, when they told me we should, cause we can make a bunch of money, that was the wrong answer. Yeah. So, but they piqued my curiosity and the, uh, sort of my longtime general manager slash president slash, you know, guy who's been with me almost the longest Brian Sandoli, who is a bourbon guy, he kind of kept poking a little bit and, and he really educated me on it. And what I started to find out very quickly was how important the water is and, hmm. and your water is, is so key to the final spirit. Well, that was the first box that got checked because I had bought this 235 piece, uh, a 235 acre piece of property up in Alexander Valley in Sonoma County from uh, this amazing guy, Jeffrey Bustle, Vietnam vet. Uh, he's passed away since. And uh, we, we, I was extremely hungover. It was a very hot day. I went up to his property and it's this beautiful property. It's got this amazing spring, you know, with this beautiful water. And I was going to plant the vineyard and Jeffrey took me out on his 40. He had a 357 on his, you know, in his holster and a nine millimeter in the front of the ATV and, <laughs> He had about 150 uh, uh, of California plants of California's other crop before it was uh, kosher to do that, and and uh, I he 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 had the property listed at a certain price, and I, I you know I don't play poker I just I have my number and that's what I can afford and that's what I told him. And he said he shook my hand and that was it. Now you shake a guy like that hand, you're buying that property. Yeah. And what ended up happening is the the road that we would have had to build just to get to where we could plant the vineyard, uh, which was going to be very steep and, and expensive and a lot of years of, of, of work, the road alone would have been at least a million dollars. So I had, now I own this 235 beautiful, you know, rugged piece of property, but it had this amazing spring. So when I realized how important the water was, I said, okay, now this is starting to have, you know, some authenticity to it. So I got samples of the water. We had it, we, uh, had it tested, um, you know, not only for safety, but also for the, the mineral content and the water came back, you know, as, as, as far as the numbers minus the, you know, we, we, we would have to clean it up, but as far as the minerals and all that, um, you know, it wasn't hard. It was beautiful. It is beautiful water. 
And so then we had it filtered and we did a water tasting with a bunch of other waters and it unanimously won. So I was like, all right, now this is, you know, kind of getting real. But again, this is over a period of years. So then I was like, well, if we're going to do this, we should grow our own grains, you know, like we do with grapes. You know, we should have much more of a, a, a wine sensibility to it. So that's what we did. We, uh, kind of buddy of mine, Bruce Rominger out in winters, which is about half an hour from here. Um, he grows, um, most all of the grains for us. And then on top of that, you know, again, applying the sort of a winemaking idea to it. What if we finished a certain percentage of the spirits in wine barrel or in our used or once filled wine barrels, but only if it makes the product better, like it's not going to be as a gimmick. So, um, at that point I had, um, started, uh, I'd enlisted, enlisted a guy named Jordan Vi, uh, who was a consultant. Well, he consulted for us at the time. Um, and he's a master distiller, great guy. He, uh, started, a Breckenridge distillery and, and, uh, he, we actually, he's now, yeah, I just saw him a second ago because I'm down at the distillery, but, uh, we were able to coax him back to California. So, um, but I hired him as a consultant he would fly out and we would put blends together and then we would use, you know, using some different barrels and then we would, you know, he would come back the next month after they had spent time in those barrels. Um, you know, we were just purchasing whiskey and he was doing this for me because I didn't have the right license. And when we checked that final box, if you will, that yes, some amount, cause we did a hundred percent, 50%, 20%, 10, it was all different, all across the board, different, you know, Grenache barrels, Zen barrels, Cab barrels, Chardonnay barrels. I mean, we, we really dug into it, but it had to make the product better. And luckily at, at a certain percentages, and we still tinker with it, it does improve the product. So I was like, all right, now there's a reason to be. So the other part of it was, which was great to have all this time. I started studying, you know, the, the, the sort of packaging and to this day, but even it was way worse, you know, five, 10 years ago, call it, you know, you look at a wall of whiskey and it, it's like, you know, kissing cousins. I mean, some great labels, but they're, they're all very similar. And, and it's, 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 you know, I mean, I guess you could say that about wine too. And especially imagine wine 30 years ago when every label was, you know, some type of a chateau or trying to look like a French label and, you know, so, I mean, they're great labels, but I was like, you know, how do we differentiate ourselves, A, and then B, I had heard that, you know, a lot of, you know, younger females were starting to get into bourbon and whiskey and just younger people in general, you know, kind of had, it was having this, this renaissance that it is still continuing to have. So I wanted to have a bottle that was totally different and that the iconography has nothing to do with, you know, the traditional mm-hmm. whiskey bourbon or, or, you know, labels. So, and also that might appeal more to, you know, the rye, especially to females. So we have these, you know, blacked out bottles, which in the industry is, you know, the traditional industry is frowned upon because this one old timer is like, you're trying to hide, you know, this, that your whiskey has shitty color. Like, cause that's sometimes how you judge a whiskey. And I didn't even think about that. I just, it needed to be black to set off the label because when we did it, when it wasn't black and I just liked it. I mean, the first, the first mock-up I took what we ended up getting a custom mold, but it was called the little sumo and I had matte black paint and I painted it outside, let it dry and, and then put the label on. And it, 
worked because it wasn't working when we were, when we had the brown background. And then that's when I realized is because for 20 odd years, my background, except for white wines, which I make a very small amount of, my background's always, you know, when a wine bottle's full, it looks black. So my brain just has been programmed that way. Interesting. So that's where the, so, so that's when I was like, all right, well, what, then it's going to be a black bottle. And, and it's going to, and they are definitely different. <laughs> when you put them up on a, on a wall, and most whiskey bottles are more tall and skinny, this is short and fat. It's black. It's got a huge, you know, the, the entire, almost the entire, what I would call the palette is used. I mean, the labels are, you know, much bigger in uh, ratio than any other labels out there. So yeah, we, we had, we had a, a lot of fun with that one. That's cool. Well, between that and the, when you were developing the prisoner and whoever you were working with was just begging you not to use the labeling approach that you use between that and the whiskey bottle design where they're telling you, Oh, this will never work. And you're hiding your whiskey. It feels like the common kind of thread of insight here is don't listen to don't listen to this seemingly you know well-intentioned advice from people who are super established in the industry Mm -hmm. you know i i I hate i don't like it when you know i i know it's meant as a compliment sometimes when people are like oh you know you're you're a disruptor you're being disruptive it's like no that's not the intent the intent is it it gets back to a i have to like it and and true influencers, which I'm not saying I am one, right. they're telling you what you like. You, you, most people need to be told what they like. And, and so, and it's not that they don't have good aesthetic. It's, and especially right. if you know it's expensive. I mean, there's this obviously psychology behind it, but it's that concept of like, you are going to like this, whether you like it or not. And you're not going to know why, but I'm going to find that part of your brain or I'm going to figure out and I'm going to have to trust in my instinct. But it's that, it's that sort of veracity of, you know, the more you tell me I can't do something, I want to do it. But also I love the, the, it gets back to the competition. It gets back to the, like, you know, everything, you life's too short to do something obvious, you know, it's just, you know, and, and risk, you know, I'm very lucky. I have a short memory. I, I, I risk to me is a very relative term. You know, I've, my stock market shows a much different uh, risk tolerance. I'm like the biggest chicken in the market. I mean, it's, it's hilarious. It's actually funny how much of a, of, of chicken I am because I don't control it. But when I can control something, my, my risk tolerance is, is probably a little unhealthy. <laughs> well, Dave, this has really been great. Um, last few questions. Um, I feel like sure. I would, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about Mare Island, what is going on there and what are you building? So I'm actually here right now. So down on Mare Island, um, it started with the Savage and Cook distillery. Um, about five years ago, I came down here and I just fell in love with, you know, the island, the city of Vallejo, um, you know, these amazing old brick buildings, one of which I'm standing in now that was this particular one was built in 1901. The building next door was one of the oldest existing uh, building or, or building still on the island, uh, which was 1865. And that, then there's another building in front of them. That, those three buildings make up the distillery. And then on what I 
kind of called our block here. We have two more, um, uh, well, I should say one more brick building and then two other um, tin clad buildings. Uh, and that, that kind of makes up this block. And we're starting in one of the buildings, we're going to do a, a grocery store. And the next building is going to be uh, my office and a sort of heavily curated retail space. And then the building next to that is going to be where we open it up to, you know, call them, I, I don't like the word makers, but sort of artisans and people that, you know, create, you know, like in fact, I was just talking to this wonderful couple that make the most amazing leather belts you've ever seen. And, and so part of the, part of the, it, it's to, it's to give people opportunity um, that otherwise, you know, can't, you know, can't afford to get started. It's free space essentially and, super cool. and materials and all that. And then the, we would sell, you know, some of those products, um, at our store, you know, sort of our retail portion of the store next door, but then it'll also have, you know, vintage, you know, restored Vespas and vintage Rolexes and, you know, I don't know, whatever. I, I love duck decoys. So old, cool duck decoy, anything that, that we think is kind of cool. Um, and, and also stuff that, you know, local, local folks are making, um, as well as local artists or not necessarily local, just artists. Um, so that'll be kind of this block. And then we have another building, uh, 101, that's kind of right on the water. And, and that will be eventually the idea is to turn that into a winery. Um, it's a much bigger building. And it was also built, that was built in 1906. It's an amazing building. But so that I, I, I'm trying to make a, a very, what could be a very long story as short as possible. So those are holdings that I have um, personally. And then in a partnership called the Nimitz Group with myself, um, Sebastian Lane, and Galen Lawrence, um, we ended up purchasing the rest of the island. So it's about the southern island is about 800 acres that's developable. And then wow. the north island is about 154 acres, which we're currently in uh, negotiations with the city to purchase that. And so we've spent the last two years negotiating with uh lennar um lennar homes who owned uh, this part of the island and were successfully able to purchase this in november and we were also running a parallel path with um a design firm in san francisco hok who are just amazing and i had no idea the science of development and city planning it's been the most amazing you know experience and learning experience but essentially, we're going to, you know, we, there's kind of what we call the historic core, which is all these beautiful buildings that um, we would have respected anyway, but we legally have to because they're, all of them are some form of historic landmark. But we're going to, well, yeah, so we'll, we'll re, we repurpose, do a bunch of historic repurposing of these buildings, and then also develop probably about another 25 million square feet of all mixed use from, you know, film studios to restaurants to, you know, it's, it's basically building a small city. Wow. That sounds unbelievable. And there's a fried chicken restaurant. And a fried, yes, which is coming soon. Blanchard, but, uh, Lauren, Lauren Blanchard, who uh, runs the distillery, her husband, Chris, who's an international man of mystery. He was, he was a DJ back in the day, uh, Vitabix, and went on tour with the Beastie Boys and oh, wow. that whole early Def Jam crew. Oh, yeah. Then he became one of the very few masters of wine, and he also makes 
the most exceptional fried chicken from his grandmother's recipe. Oh, that's cool. So he is going to be in charge of our fried chicken uh, here at the distillery because we were able to get a, a new permit, which is a, called a Type 74, and, and the requirement is you have to serve food, and then you can serve you know, beer, wine, spirits. You know, it's essentially... Yeah, I'm doing what every friend of mine in the restaurant business has told me not to do, which is get in the restaurant business. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really curious about is I'm sure you get approached by aspiring entrepreneurs all the time asking for advice. What is your advice around the topic of education when it comes to being an entrepreneur and being a business person? How do you advise people to educate themselves, whether it's through college or an MBA or self-education through books or courses or mentors or just getting your hands dirty and doing it? What is your approach to advising other entrepreneurs on the topic of their business education? Well, that's a trick. Well, not a tricky one. So as I mentioned, both my parents were professors. So, um, and I went to a small boarding school and had aspirations. So it was very competitive. I mean, the ski, the school was very competitive for athletics as well as, as academics. And, you know, so I, up until my 11th grade year, I was, um, extremely focused on going to a good school, doing, you know, the whole American dream thing. Right. Right. And, decided it'd be a good idea to go back to LA for my final semester. So I could, I mean, the school I was at had 50 students and go experience prom and, you know, you have a normal high school year and, and, and I then got home and remembered exactly why I had actually asked my parents to go to boarding school. LA and I don't, I love LA because, you know, I, I can, I can, sort of talk shit about LA cause I was born and raised there. I'm allowed to, but I have kind of a 48 hour rule down in LA, but I love it. And then I have to leave. Um, Sounds wise. and it was a disaster. Yeah, it was a complete disaster. And I was, I got into this really prestigious private school and it was like, just, it was, everything was wrong. And my parents are very accepting. And so, but you got to have a plan. So I told them I've been accepted to the university of new Orleans. All I have to do, I had already taken my SATs. All I have to do is take the GED. So that's, I, I, I'm technically a high school dropout. So I went to University of New Orleans, loved it, but chased my high school girlfriend over to Arizona. And had I not gone there, I would have never gone to Italy. So for me, education is less about classroom and more about life. Mm-hmm. And I think for highly specific things, it's necessary. Um, it, like obviously doctors, engineers, technicians, right. you know, computer scientists. I, to- I totally get it. My brain doesn't work that way. Um, but for instance, and Scott Galloway, if you're listening, I would appreciate an email back. I'm trying to get into this guy's class at NYU. Um, <laughs> and, and I've been listening to him and Kara Swisher's podcast called Pivot. And it's, I'm just fascinated by, I would love to take his class on marketing. So, and I would love to, Harvard has a summer program for architecture and design that someday I will take. Like I, I want to take, I want to go back to college and take the classes I wanted to take. Like one of my favorite classes in, in college was a cultural anthropology class that I don't even know I had to take it for some credit. And I absolutely love that. I want to go, I want to learn things I want to learn. And so education is great if you're not using it simply as a certificate. Like, right. If you're just, if it's just to check a box, I get it. And we all have to do that, but nothing, I mean, 
I, I'm not saying nothing I learned in college I'm using now, but it's not about that because everything I'm doing now I learned in college somehow because that's a period of time that shapes you. Mm-hmm. I think gap years are, should be a prerequisite. Oh, I mean, yeah. you should have to take one because then you're going to really want to go to school after you have to go work and pay bills. And, you know, college is like a vacation. Um, my parents required that if we, they were going to pay for college, you had to maintain at least a 3.0 GPA, which is a very, which I barely did, but I'm proud of that. Um, <laughs> so I think specialized education is important. I think reading is very important. I read voraciously everything. I mean, I'm reading a book on, um, uh, what is it? MBS right now, as well as a book on, you know, the Ukrainian economics and also, a book called, um, that got the Pulitzer prize. Oh God, I can't believe I'm forgetting the name. But anyway, I just, I read and I read technical magazines and, and people magazine. I just love to read and it improves your vocabulary, your cognitive skills. It's different from watching things. I love visual, but that I, that's different. Mm -hmm. And I I do love podcasts because I can do other things while I'm listening to them. And just, just, I mean, I, I feel I have a friend, uh, Jorge Hernandez, and I, I thought I, I had curiosity and I like to do things and check things out. And I, and I have a huge respect for this guy anyway. And I was over at his house. He lives you know, nearby and our friends are good buddies. And he's, his curiosity is next level, like physics. And just, it just, it just, um, I, it, I was like, I got to step up my game because <laughs> neither of us, neither of us can go back to school right now or go take a class. Although Scott Galloway, if you'll let me take that NYU class, I will, I will please let me take that class. But (laughs) you know, it, it, uh, um, it is that, that continuing to, you know, most of the successful people that I've been around are extremely curious. Yeah. And when you harness that curiosity, it, it can, you know, it can be lightning in a bottle or it can just be, you're just a little smarter, but you know, I love, you know, and also God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason, mm-hmm. like listen and don't, don't, when someone's talking to you, don't, don't listen to them and don't think, don't be thinking about what you're going to say next. Right. Pause and listen. It's just the, it's the, it's a super, it's a, it can be your secret weapon if you let it be. But and so I think that is also part of education. So getting back to the, you know, sort of the original, you know, question, there's a place for all different types of education. Um, and I also think that one of a, a great way to educate sort of your soul is to, um, you know, help others. You yeah. Know, don't, you know, every day try to just do one good thing for somebody else. If it's your spouse, your friend, your kids, a stranger, it's just, you'll just feel better, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's kind of what we're supposed to do. So I think that's, you know, and you'll probably learn something. Right. Right. That's huge. Very wise words. Well, Dave, thank you again. This was such a pleasure. So, so much incredible insight here. Any, uh, before we wrap up any parting advice for those aspiring entrepreneurs out there? I mean, it's, it's the, 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 what is it? Jimmy V line that I think is amazing and is, uh, has been a bit cliche and overused, but it is that never give up. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's just so much of it. You know, it, there is a ton of luck involved 
and and not everybody can work hard, but that's again that is can be a great equalizer. And luck is, you know, sometimes unfair both ways. But if you just keep punching um, and you're doing the right thing, it, it it's you know again it's never it's never as good as it seems and it's never as bad as it seems. Yeah. But you never want to, and I told my daughter this, I said, you never want to, I've had those moments where I look back and, and just, you never want to look back and go, God, I should have just stuck with it or I should have done this. Um, and you're going to, no matter what, but try to limit those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and don't, don't all listen to people, but I mean, as far as advice, but don't let, don't let somebody talk you out of it. Yeah. If you don't do it, decide yourself. But if someone tries to talk you out of it, heavily analyze what they said. And then also consider the source and fact check. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people in positions that they either should or shouldn't be in, can I've, I've watched people not do things because of false advice upon you know, further you know, looking at it, oh, wow. it wasn't even true. And you made a life decision based on fact checked bullshit. And, you know, how many dreams have been shattered with, with, you know, um, you're better, basically you're way better than you think you are. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, Dave, this was yeah. such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah. No. Really, I could easily talk to you for another three hours, but I know I got to let you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Dave. This was really great. Really appreciate My it. My pleasure. My pleasure. All right. I'll talk Anytime, to you soon. Nick. Take care. All right. So many huge insights here. Not entirely sure where to begin, but as always, here are some key insights from this conversation with Dave Finney. Number one, heed the 10% rule. A piece of advice that Dave got early in the process was that if 10% of people hate your guts, you're doing something right. Dave was told by countless people that his ideas were silly, outlandish, and would not translate in the wine industry. Comedy cut to 10 years later, he's one of the most avant-garde and successful innovators in the history of wine. Dave knew that if he heeded conventional wisdom, he would have a conventional product. So he chose to excite himself first because he knew that if he excited himself with his products, he'd be way more likely to excite his customers. Clearly, this paid off. But of course, there were the haters. You aren't going to break any new ground without offending someone or without people thinking you're at least a little bit crazy. This is a good thing and a sign that you're onto something groundbreaking. Number two. Don't try to compete within your industry. Compete across multiple industries. When Dave was developing his wine brand, he decided not to compete within the wine category. Instead, he wanted for the brand to compete with fashion, art, music, and other cultural staples instead. He went out and immersed himself in as much culture as he could with streetwear, fashion, art, music, skater culture, you name it. And because of this, Dave's wines are reminiscent of all of these different cultural nuances. And because Because of that, they stand out in their category because they're striking anomalies in a sea of sameness. This is transcendent branding. Brands that challenge themselves to compete outside of their category not only avoid stagnation, but earn an indelible place in culture as opposed to temporary market share or share of voice within their vertical. Number three, it has to hit you in the face. 
I'm particularly fascinated with Dave's creative process. When you look at the elegance of his wine labels and the whiskey and rye labels that he's created, you can tell that a lot of thought went into each one of them. One thing Dave touched on that really struck me as interesting was when he was talking about how he would turn to foreign magazines for inspiration. Because when doing so, he would flip through these magazines really quickly. Reason being, if something didn't visually strike him immediately and he had to think it through, it was probably a B idea at best. This is a serious lesson in creativity that speaks to the importance of trusting your instinct. Usually your first reaction to something is the purest and the most potent and therefore needs to be acknowledged and nourished. So pay attention to what you have the most instant reactions to. Those are probably the most powerful things to focus on. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening to Damn Good Brands and big thanks to Dave Finney for being here today and to Samantha Smith for making it all happen. I highly recommend that you try Dave's wines. The brand, again, is Oren Swift and my personal favorites are Papillon, Abstract, and Machete. But you truly can't go wrong with any of these wines. They also make amazing gifts. Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? To learn more about our communications and digital marketing agency, Lippy Taylor, visit us at lippytaylor.com. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. Thanks again for listening to Damn Good Brands. Damn Good Brands.